Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Super Tuesday has come and gone, and the results were pretty sobering for Bernie Sanders supporters, with Joe Biden clearly emerging the victor and recapturing the frontrunner spot in the race. Now, Bernie is maybe in his more natural position, which is as the underdog. I talked to Jacobin staff writer Bronco Marchteach about Biden's wins, as well as the developments with Elizabeth Warren, Mike Bloomberg, and what the race looks like from here. And as we say in the discussion, we recorded this the day after Super Tuesday, so there could be a million new developments by the time you end up hearing this, but we tried to keep the conversation uh, pretty evergreen. We also talked about his recent book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, recently published by Verso, which you can purchase for a mere $10 at the Jacobin site. I have read the book, and it's excellent, and it also couldn't be more timely given Biden's reemergence at the forefront of the race. So please go to jacobinmag.com store and buy Yesterday's Man for 10 bucks. You need to be armed with the full dossier on Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., and there is no better version of it than Bronco's book. Okay, here's Bronco. Bronco, hello. Hello, Micah. So we are speaking the day after Super Tuesday, and you've written this book called Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. And before yesterday... I, I I cannot say who said this, but someone in the Jacobin office was joking about the book when Bernie had won the first three contests and uh, it seemed like it was going to be all smooth sailing for Bernie, uh, that the proper title of the book should have been Yesterday's Book, uh, but that person <laughs> has been proven extremely wrong uh, yes, by yesterday's results. Aren't we all glad that they have been proven wrong? I know I am. <laughs> well, yeah. I am celebrating. <laughs> I'm an up all night uh, drinking and partying. So. Yeah, that's right. You, you're you're just in this for books. Because everybody knows that left publishing, socialist publishing, <laughs> is the real way to make money out there. <laughs> that's, that's always been the classic path to uh, to riches and fame and, and my experience. So what's your initial reaction to the results from uh, Super Tuesday? Uh, horror. Uh disappointment uh you know i mean you know it's not going to come to anyone's surprise that a book by the name of yesterday's man the case against joe biden the author is not particularly excited uh for joseph robin and biden jr um but no it was, it was not good i mean i i i think i was saying this to someone else and i think i and a lot of other people underestimated uh among the democratic electorate how important things like the media and endorsements were, you know, because we saw it failed in the Republican primary and we just figured that that would translate neatly onto the Democratic electorate. But I mean, the Democratic electorate is way more trusting in institutions like the media, particularly the media. And, and clearly for them, endorsements still matter. I mean, Jim, Jim Clyburn single-handedly has like, he didn't just deliver South Carolina, Jim Clyburn by endorsing Biden somehow managed to deliver him the entire South and even a bunch of northern states. And I think, yeah, there's been a lot of, like, uh, uh, reconsidering of, you know, what, it, what it's actually going to take, I think, to win uh, this primary for me uh, the, and reconsidering my assumptions about it. Yeah, in some ways, we should 
probably be surprised not at the results from yesterday, from Super Tuesday, but from the fact that Bernie won all three contests to begin with and that we ever even had in our minds that this might be smooth sailing for Bernie. I mean, he's now more in the traditional position of an insurgent, anti-establishment, democratic, socialist candidate in a party that is very hostile to all of those things. Mm. Although, you know, I mean, he's back to being the underdog, which in many ways, if you look at his career, that's that's why he is most uh, comfortable being in many ways is, is fighting back from behind. It's like it's almost like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure consciously no, but the, like there's some sort of like subconscious, maybe even cosmic, you know, need for Bernie Sanders that if he succeeds, it has to be just against a torrent of constant setbacks. Um, you know, I mean, definitely if you, if you ever read about his, his mayalty in, in Bellington, especially the, the first two years, which I'm trying to, to write about for Jacobin, as you know, um, I mean, that's really what it's just like setback after setback after setback after setback for so long. He just struggles and struggles and struggles and he, and he makes it. Um, and it's similar to, I mean, I, I guess really, if you look at his entire, uh, political career after the mail too but um you know i mean definitely as someone who, who you know would prefer sanders than biden it's not exactly uh pleasant viewing to watch uh to watch him in this position again yeah although now that the race is to down to bernie versus biden i feel like this is a good place for bernie to be at even if he's slightly down in the delegate count because when you see the two of them on stage one on one or in just the general campaigning that is now going to happen and where in which Biden will be the target of Bernie's ire that's a good matchup there i would say i mean i can't imagine that Biden will emerge from such a contest looking particularly great Biden until now has he he's his campaign has has limited him to these minimal uh, unscripted appearances, whether it's in front of people uh, or in front of interviewers or, or even on debate stage. I mean, that, that one is harder to game, but the, the fact that there's been like 35 candidates every single time that they've, they've done these debates has meant that he's ended up speaking for roughly, you know, at most 10 minutes, 10, 12 minutes uh, each time. And even then, it's all he's doing is just sort of spitting out a, a soundbite. Um, usually a completely incoherent and nonsensical one that people sort of just gloss over or, you know, it's like so late in the evening that everyone's already kind of just glassy eyed and like semi-conscious anyway. And they're just like, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, but I mean, in a debate where it's just him and Sanders and they are having to, or he is having to rather, uh, speak for anywhere between what, 40 to 60 minutes, um, maybe longer, um, where he's going to have to not just do sound bites, but actually, actually he's got to for one speak for a long time. Um, I think, you know, once it's two people on stage, usually it's like they have like a couple of minutes, maybe even three minutes to speak. So that's already, already alarm bells. Um, I think for Biden's campaign right there, but then he's going to have to like respond to thing like Sanders will respond to him. He's going to have to respond to Sanders. Like I was watching um, the democratic debates from the, from 2016, you know, and it's hard to overstate how much those help Sanders because he would, you know, they, they asked a question, one of them, about Flint. And Sanders just right out the gate is like, uh, the, the governor should resign. 
and I would I would ask him to resign. And then Clinton, it goes back to Clinton. She's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I also would ask him to resign. You know, so Sanders has always kind of taken these more bold, decisive positions and then the other person's having to catch up. Um, and that's what you would get in a debate between the two of them. I mean, you know, unfortunately, at this point, um, you know, Super Tuesday is gone and the next debate will be after the next set of primary contests. So people won't really get to see Biden sputtering and, and kind of uh, falling apart until until voting is already done in a whole bunch of other states. Right. But assumedly, the Sanders campaign is now going to go extremely hard on Biden on things like Social Security, his vote for the Iraq war, his myriad other horrible things that he has done throughout his <laughs> uh, illustrious career that you document in yesterday's man. And he's going to have the answer for that out on the on the uh, campaign trail. You know, you're mentioning his performance in debates and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I feel like every one of those debates that I've watched, especially as the night goes on, he becomes worse and more incoherent. <laughs> and and that's when he's not really talking that much. And also he like cuts himself off. You know, there's multiple <laughs> debates now where he's like complaining about the the uh, the moderators cutting him off and not letting him speak rather than just speaking the way that all the other people do. <laughs> and, you know, to tie that to your book, in your book, you know, the typical way to write a book like yours is to say you know, a paragraph will be like, you know, at this time, Biden did this and you describe his action and then you provide a quote from Biden showing that he did this or that he said this or that he thought this. And in your book, I'm not saying that you did a bad job writing the book. I'm saying <laughs> like the quotes that Careful. were av- <laughs> the quotes that are available to you to then use as that substantiation of the claim you just made. The best quote is one that doesn't often doesn't quite make sense in terms of what Biden is saying. And it, it doesn't feel like you're being dishonest or, or unfair to him. It's just like this thing that he said even 30 years ago didn't quite make sense. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ones just off the top of my head is when he's talking about, uh, you know, why busing is bad and his point is – I'm not going to get this completely right, but just paraphrase. You know, read the book; you'll you'll see it. But there's the the analogy he gives to a, a petrol station or a gas station. I should I should say uh, we are speaking to an American audience, um, and he says, you know, well, if the, the problem is if there's a gas station um, that won't let uh, let blacks in uh, in a toilet or something, you don't close down the gas station. You just take down the sign that says, you know, no blacks, and that's how you do it. And it's like. It makes no sense because the solution to school segregation wasn't let's close down the schools. <laughs> I don't think anyone was was putting that idea forward. It was literally just let's put kids in buses and make them travel for a while to go to a different school that's maybe a little more uh, uh, multiracial. But, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about those quotes is that there were so many quotes that I could have used, and I was like, this is hilarious and just, like, reflects not that great on him, but – I felt like it was a cheap shot, and like I wanted the the book to be about you know the policy and and the stuff that you know people should be outraged about, all the like terrible things he's done, and and you know the, the stuff he said along the way uh, about those things. But yeah, there's like I mean, there's no other way to put this. The, Joe Biden is a horny man, and he refuses to not let you know about it. He insists that you that you know uh, from the beginning of his career to, to the end that, that this is a man who who enjoys the ladies uh, and there's there's a famous 
I think everyone knows this one. There's the famous Washingtonian profile of him where he is uh, describing his late wife uh, and how much, how beautiful she was. And he pulls out like a photo of her to this reporter in, in her um, bikini. And he's like, uh, yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, she, she had a, a bought like a Playboy bunny, didn't she? And then, and then he'd be like, ah, oh, you know, when I had my, my uh, law practice, it was, it was tough. It was long hours. I'd, I'd come home dead tired. I, could, I was too tired to do anything. I could, I could still make love, but I couldn't do anything else. And then decades later, uh, in 2007, as he's running for office, for president, um, in that ill-fated adventure, he's talking to a, a group of uh, university students, and he's like, well, I don't want to spend too much time in Washington. I want to I be back home to be able to make love with my wife. <laughs> We get it, John. Well, uh, I don't recall those anecdotes being in the book, which is a testament to how fair you were attempted to be to Biden. Although I will say, in reading your book, before we get back to Super Tuesday, I in, in reading your book, I, I think I discovered the root of your 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 you know what what was driving you to actually write this book, <laughs> which is on page one forty one. When he refers to Serbians as "quote illiterates and degenerates," <laughs> this is the real reason. Why you had a you had a personal vendetta against this man and his anti-Serbianism. That is that is some good digging. You know, uh, a lot of people have asked me why I write this book, and I've tried to I've tried to hide it with explanations about how I want voters to be informed. Uh, but I will have to admit, I I will not stand for my people being disrespected by Joe Biden. So, okay, let's go back to Super Tuesday. Uh, so we're, we're talking a little bit about a Bernie versus Biden matchup, but there were a number of other interesting things to come out of yesterday, uh, not the least of which was uh, Bloomberg dropping out, which I feel like any time, uh, as our own Hadass Theer wrote in Jacobin, any time that a, a billionaire like Bloomberg enters the national stage and is forced to eat shit in front of all of us, we should really just take a moment to bask in the glory of that moment. Yeah, there's something heartening about the fact that this guy spent, how much did he spend in the end? Like $700 million? Half a billion, so I think 500 To spend that much money to just be ritually humiliated, not just on the debate stage, but but from a national audience. I mean, it's it's. I mean, first of all, it's, it's a testament to the obscene concentration of wealth uh, in the United States, <laughs> that a billionaire can just pay this much money just to embarrass himself. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's great. I mean, uh, it's it tells you that money isn't everything. I mean, it's this sort of a strange parallel with uh, with the Trump-Clinton campaign. I mean, Trump ran a campaign that was just fly by the seat of your pants, uh, semi-improvised, careening from disaster to scandal to to you know uh next bad news cycle um and he still won clinton outspent him i'm not sure what the what the uh, ratio was but spent more money than him um and i feel like this is this is proven again that yeah uh, money can do a lot but it can only take you so far you know if you have a terminal lack of charisma sense of humor which just any likability, you know, there's only so much, uh, so many wads of cash that'll cover that up. Well, you can't say he had no lack, lack of a uh, sense of, uh, you can't say he had no sense of humor. He seemed to have a misogynistic sense of humor. So, uh, oh, true. don't, yeah. don't take that away from, from Bloomberg. But of course this really opens up. Well, I guess this is the question. Does it open up a door for future billionaires like him to 
engage in acts like this because on the one hand he bought his way onto the debate stage had 500 million dollars that he didn't care about flushing down the toilet uh and became a political player in this race because of that on the other hand as i said he ate shit so maybe <laughs> maybe this will not be a path that other people will be you know maybe it doesn't open the floodgates in the same way because he really embarrassed himself I mean, my question is, how much money would it take? Like, is there is there is it like terminal velocity where eventually, once you start spending money and you hit a limit, it, does, it has no effect anymore? Or was Bloomberg being conservative? Like, if he okay, so what? The guy's worth sixty five billion dollars, right? Yeah, it depends on. Uh, am I correct I about think. that? Somewhere between I think 60, it's 60 and 65. sixty five. Yeah. Okay. So let's say okay, he spends a third of his fortune. If he spent. $20 billion just buying every official. Like, you know, you would have to be insane to do this, but it's possible that, that someone could be this kind of just ruthlessly uh, ambitious. Although, why would you and be like, insane? You'd be left with $40 billion. You'd still be one of the richest men on the planet. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's like, I feel like he he, he didn't, he really didn't uh, give it his all, you know? Like, I, I feel like he could have he spent a little more money, you know? Just $10 billion, $5 billion, I don't know. You know, like a good, a good decent chunk, you know. I mean, whatever what happened to entrepreneurialism? Isn't isn't uh, isn't the idea of like taking risk taking? Isn't that uh, a big part of you know starting a business and being a a, a great uh, business maven? Well, we we lost Bloomberg, uh, but as of this recording, we still have Elizabeth Warren in the race. Although by the time this podcast comes out, who knows? There's lots of. Rumors swirling around today, Wednesday, about what she is going to do. Um, how much do you think her staying in the race impacted last night? Because on the one hand, the obvious point to make is that all of the centrist candidates dropped out before Super Tuesday and got behind Joe Biden. And we even heard from uh, people we haven't heard from in a while, like Beto O'Rourke made an appearance. Uh, hadn't thought about him in a while. Uh, but Warren did not do the same thing, despite the fact that she lost and lost badly in every single contest that she has been in up to this point, has never even taken second. Uh, and on the one hand, you're, the the obvious place to go in your mind is she could have dropped out and done what Pete Buttigieg's and the Amy Klobuchar's did, which is support the candidate who is supposedly closest to her ideologically. On the other hand, I feel like everything that she has done, especially over the last couple weeks, indicates that she has no intention of lining up behind Bernie Sanders. And she and her campaign have told reporters things like they are positioning her to be the consensus candidate to emerge at the uh, DNC in Milwaukee. And she's piled on on these attacks on Bernie Sanders. So... You know, on paper, many people would think that it would make sense for her to line up behind Bernie, but in, in practice, she has not been making any kind of moves that would indicate that that's something that she wants to do. It's hard to know what is going on in that campaign or what her, re I mean, what her reasoning is, what her motivation is, what she's even trying to get. It, you know, I, uh, I was not one of these people who was, you know, Warren is a neoliberal shell, yada yada, yada and I still don't believe that, but. Um, I wasn't one of these people who really had it in for her through 2019. I thought, you know, she was uh, an inferior candidate, both on, on record and, and on policy um, than Sanders, but, you know, vastly better than the rest of the field. And, and I felt like she was probably an ally 
to the kind of broader progressive movement, I guess, that was lined up behind Sanders. Um, this year, uh, she has just gone off the rails. I mean, the the disingenuous thing with, oh, Bernie's trashing me because there was a volunteer call that said, I like Elizabeth Warren. She's my second choice, but I don't think she's going to bring in new voters into the process. You know, and then the the thing about insinuating that he was a sexist, that she ended the thing after the debate, the stunt after the debate, then more recently the attacks on him for not releasing his medical records, which he has. Um, I mean, that was particularly low because that's, that is just one of the most cheap, cheapest smears that you could do. I mean, that just complete nonsense piling on the Bernie bro stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's notable that she has not once attacked Biden uh, I mean, basically ever, but particularly on the bankruptcy bill. She hasn't once um, criticized. And this is the thing that supposedly animated her political career. And she didn't. She went harder after Sanders this entire time. Maybe that's to do with the fact that people thought Biden was a non-entity for a while and Sanders was the one to go for. Right, but if you have a basic commitment to the you know, roughly, broadly, the kind of politics that Bernie is trying to put forward, assumedly you would not be engaging in this kind of behavior. You would not be making these kind of statements. You would not be refusing Bernie's handshake after a debate. You, mm. would, you, you would not be doing any of these things. You would at the very least be drawing policy distinctions, which he has. I mean, you know, one of the ironic things is that the entire narrative is about how, how terrible Sanders has been to Warren and how his supporters are so terrible for, to her because – you know, every now and then, you know, some idiot on Twitter says something mean about her, you know, as if this doesn't happen on the Internet uh, every waking moment of every day. Um, meanwhile, she has just hammered him and hammered him. He hasn't said a single thing about it. He actually came to her defense in December. She went she did a drive by, attempted a drive by on Pete Buttigieg over his uh, wine uh, cave fundraiser. And he quite rightly pointed out that she was a hypocrite in this, that she had been doing those exact kind of fundraisers. And Sanders actually came to her aid and, and sort of gently hit Buttigieg back. And so the idea and, – and, you know, has not responded to any of these attacks. So the idea that, you know, Sanders has been so awful to her or something, this, this cycle is – I mean, it's such a trumped-up thing. I mean, I don't know the purpose behind this narrative. I mean, what is the motivation here? You know, some people are saying that she wants a top slot in whatever the next administration is, which which could be the case. I would say, and listen, Elizabeth Warren and her staff is almost certainly not listening to this, but I would say that, you know, she she has a chance, I think, to really redeem her reputation. I think she she made a lot of really terrible decisions this campaign, not just to hit Sanders like this and alienate his supporters um, in the process undercutting this this claim that she's a unity candidate, but also the, the decision to, for example, take super PAC money. I mean, that is... After this campaign ends, that will forever be on the record. People will, every time she runs for, for anything again, people will always be able to say, well, Warren couldn't stick to her principles. She said that she didn't want to take super PAC money, and then she did. She, you know, she swore off uh, big dollar fundraisers, but then uh, used them in, uh, to, to sort of uh, cushion her campaign from the beginning. All these things are going to be used against her. However, I think... At the moment, we're in a moment in history, not just in this election, but in just literally the moment in history that we are in. If you look at the broad scope of where we are, where Warren could make a, an incredibly gutsy, a risky, career career risky choice, but a gutsy decision to get behind Sanders, 
to throw her support to him and endorse him like AOC did when Sanders was in a hospital bed after a heart attack at the lowest moment of his campaign when everyone, I'm sure, was telling AOC, you're crazy to do this, don't. She did it, and she brought his campaign back from the brink, and she made you know the, the possibility of uh, some sort of progressive politics in the United States possible um, uh, for the first time in, in a generation. Warren has a chance to do that. And I think if she doesn't, if she thinks that the safer career move is to uh, line up behind Biden and to hope that he picks her for a VP slot, doubtful, I, I will add. But if that's what she thinks, I think she is making a horrible decision. She's not only going to make a terrible decision for her career long term because she's going to – a lot of her supporters will feel betrayed. Um, but beyond that, I think history will remember her very, very poorly. Yeah, Jacobin Associate Editor Sean Goody pointed out earlier today exactly what you just said about the AOC route, which took a lot of courage and really spoke to the kind of person, just as a human being, that AOC is, that she was willing to take this risk uh, in, in, in taking a, a move that was not the careerist choice by any stretch of the imagination, which was to endorse Bernie Sanders, period, much less endorse Bernie Sanders while he's literally in a hospital bed recovering from a heart attack. And who knows how much of a bump Elizabeth Warren could have or can actually deliver to Bernie Sanders. I mean, there's been lots of data that shows that the the demographic profiles of their campaigns are extremely different, and some of her supporters probably are not deliverable uh, to Bernie Sanders. But certainly, a, an endorsement would not hurt. Uh, and maybe by the time this podcast comes out, we, we will have been proven wrong about this. Maybe, maybe she'll have made that that kind of uh, maybe she'll have made that endorsement. But uh, she has not done that thus far. Long after her campaign was clearly shown to not be viable. Uh, and uh, that's something that should be uh, remembered. Of course, all of this is not to say that we would not welcome, you know, the, or that the Bernie Sanders campaign would not welcome uh, Warren supporters into into their uh, campaign. It's just it's no, just of kind of so. head scratching as to why Warren has chosen to act I, this way. I'm baffled by her decision making. I realize, I, by the way, I didn't actually answer your question. What kind of impact would it have? Yeah, I mean, I th- look. I think it clearly shows, if you look at the breakdown of Buttigieg and Klobuchar, uh, support, at least Buttigieg, um, second choice for his supporters was Sanders as well. And yet, Buttigieg getting behind Biden because it added to this momentum that he got from South Carolina, you know, which is momentum is this airy-fairy thing that you know, can't really be quantified. It's, it's intangible. But it, there is, that idea does exist. It is a, it is a real thing. And that clearly added to that to that momentum he had coming out of South Carolina and I think is what delivered him a whole bunch of states, uh, including in, in the north. I mean, you know, these are places that Biden didn't even campaign in. He didn't have offices in. He didn't visit. Nothing. Um, so I think that, that explains it. And I think, I mean, you know, I th- Carl Bayer uh, did, did that piece for, for, well, for his blog that we reprinted in Jacobin that showed that over time Warren's supporters um, – have become more pro Sanders, you know, disproportionately more Sanders second choice people. Um, and I, I find it difficult to believe that if Warren didn't do a similar thing to Buttigieg and Klobuchar, that, that there wouldn't have been a bump in support. Because the other thing about it is that Biden, because of that win and because of those endorsements, got two to three days of millions of dollars of free media. 
um, glowing, glowing media. And that was, by the way, that was never going to happen to Sanders because, of course, when Sanders wins, all the coverage is about how how terrifying it is and how he'll almost suddenly lose and you know, deliver Trump a second term. Um, but still, it would have been something. Warren doing that would have arrested that that uh, media, uh, free media that Biden was go- getting. It would have sort of cut into that. It, I think it would have given Sanders a little bit more momentum going in. And it's hard for me to believe that Elizabeth Warren in Texas, where Sanders lost by three points and Elizabeth Warren won 11% of the vote, 230,000 people, that some significant number of those would not have potentially helped Sanders go over the top in Texas. Instead, those 230,000 voters are nothing. They're gone. They, they don't count. They don't matter. They cease to exist. So we've been talking mostly about results from Super Tuesday that are a little dispiriting for people who want to see Bernie Sanders win the presidency, win the nomination, then the presidency. Uh, but there was some interesting facts coming out about polls like exit polls or entrance polls from some of the states uh matt carp wrote in jacobin uh that based on what we saw in some of these polls quote tens of thousands of joe biden socialists we learned last night walk the streets of houston charlotte and nashville and what he's referring to is uh people who in states that uh biden ended up winning even though biden won the state the exit polls or entrance polls showed that these people have favorable opinions of socialism, have uh, certainly have favorable opinions of Medicare for all. And uh, he goes on in his piece in Jacobin to say, quote, no matter what conservative pundits may say, Democratic voters did not express any overriding fear or concern about Bernie Sanders's agenda last night. In fact, they endorsed it overwhelmingly. But in a primary campaign dominated from beginning to end by a desperate Democratic desire to beat Donald Trump, voters expressed a belief, perhaps durable, perhaps fleeting, that Biden is the best candidate to do that job, unquote. And so that's really the central question going forward is not whether or not people will get behind the Sanders agenda. They are behind the Sanders agenda. Certainly it's top line agenda like Medicare for all, but they're worried about Bernie being the one who can actually defeat Donald Trump, which is people's top concern. They they want to make sure that whoever is put forward in this race uh, is able to beat Trump. And it, I always get a little frustrated by these conversations because it's like people totally forgot about 2016 and like this was the whole argument behind Hillary Clinton in 2016 uh and that was that was why we had to choose her over Bernie Sanders but regardless it seems like for Bernie supporters the the case to make going forward the case that needs to that that, that large numbers of people need to be convinced of going forward is not is Medicare for all good or bad uh or you know is even is socialism good or bad according to some of these exit polls but can Bernie Sanders defeat Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, there was an exit poll. Uh, the majority of Biden voters in South Carolina said they wanted a, quote, complete overhaul of the U.S. economic system. <laughs> right. I mean, the exact opposite of what Biden has said he would do if he were elected president. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing about pe- I mean, people are scared. People are frightened. They want Trump out. Uh, you know, we can't underestimate the power of just the nonstop propaganda that has been fed to people since the end of 2016. When you say it's as if people forgot, forgot about 2016, I mean, I think 
what it is is that people have been fed this litany of excuses for why people, why why Clinton lost. Oh, it was Russia. Oh, it was it was the uh, the Democratic National Convention. It was it was Sanders bringing up her Wall Street speeches because you know, in a primary, you're just never meant to <laughs> draw any contrast or make any criticism of your opponent. That that that's always been a thing that's been held to in, in primary contests uh, in previous years. I mean, that's what people have been told, and I think that. I mean, we, we've, on the left, I think, been critical of this whole Russia uh, narrative for, for various reasons, but we've always said that this is a sort of ex- excuse-making by the Democratic Party that refuses to um, uh, acknowledge or even examine its own failures um, and simply just plow on ahead as if nothing happened. And um, and, I, and I think it, it, there is that, and I, but I think also there's, there's probably a cynical uh, element to it as well, which is that you can basically just run the exact same campaign and say, you know, well, this person's electable now. It's a different person. I mean, the, the joke is that already uh, I saw Josh Hawley on Twitter, you know, the Republicans, the populist, is running uh, – he, he posted a video that was basically saying, uh, you know, with Biden prominently featured that, that the Democrats have been taken over by socialism. So they're going to they're gonna call Biden a socialist or, you know, and, and – running mate, um, a socialist. And when the Democrats lose, because Biden um, is, a, is a kind of a hapless buffoon, I'm sorry to say, uh, it's going to be, uh, again, oh, well, it was Sanders' fault because because he infected the minds of GOP, GOP voters with this idea that socialism was the Democratic Party. So there's no way to win. There's, there's no way to win. Well, and you mentioning that makes me think of your book, which is that one of the central points that you make over and over again in your book is that Biden is probably at his worst when he is attacked by the right or not even attacked by the right, but but perceives a possible line of attack from the right. And he tries to get out in front of it by immediately tacking very far to the right, sometimes further to the right than the actual right wing is is themselves. Uh, and so if you see an attack like that, you know, if Biden is the nominee and we hear attacks about Biden being a socialist or whatever, you know, socialists like us would scoff at this, of course, but what's Biden going to do when the, those attacks come? I mean, is he going to, uh, is he going to start being like, you know, you know, listen, Jack, I was with Joe McCarthy and I, I was, I was in favor of prosecuting him stronger than the rest of them. Let's string him up. I mean, you know, that, that, that would not be, I would not be shocked if that would be, if that were his response to an attack like that, given what I learned about his record from reading your book. No, he would he would absolutely concoct some story about how like you know at one time he was in the saloon with uh, with with old Joe and uh, you know they they were chatting up some of the waitresses or something. It would you know there would be, definitely be some fake anecdote that he would um, that he would bring out about his like anti communist days. I mean, uh, what, you know, here's a little sneak preview of the book for for the listeners. Um, it, my argument is that in 1978, as the as the country makes this uh, very sharp conservative turn. You have a taxpayers' rebellion in 1978. Um, Biden faces his first re-election two years out from, or th- or three years out, I guess, from from Reagan's election. Uh, two years, two years, two years out from Reagan's election, um, and uh, Biden, you know, is faced by his, his first Republican opponent for re-election. And he decides, I'm just going to run as a fiscal conservative. I'm going to say that I, you know, hate government spending and I want to put a put a ceiling on uh, <clears throat> on the federal bureaucracy and stuff. And that's basically just the, the, the 
it, he wins by, I believe, about the same margin that he won in the first place anyway. And then he just repeats that, rinse, repeat, in every single uh, election after that. Again, winning by similar or identical margins, which kind of brings up the question of, like, was it really even necessary um, to do that? Um, but, yeah, I mean, whenever he's faced by a Republican threat, like it, the, the further right the Republicans go, the further right Biden goes to try and meet them. So then, you know, Reagan comes in the 80s and Biden's like, great, now I can be, you know, hardcore deficit cutter, uh, you know, spendthrift Democrat. Um, Gingrich shows up in the 90s and Biden goes, I hate these guys. I can't believe what they're trying to do. I'm going to, I'm going to stop them. I, I was going to retire, but I'm so energized now. And he immediately passes welfare reform and votes for the balanced budget amendment three times. Um, 2002, he's, he's um, faced a challenge by uh, actually the same guy who challenged him in 1996, um, who is this uh, uh, a businessman, this, this much more right-wing businessman that, than uh, – or much more right-wing a candidate than Biden had faced before, and one who can actually rival in fundraising. And then Biden promptly decides that he will uh, try and start the Iraq war uh, as, a, as an attempt to neutralize this man's uh, challenge of him. And I mean, when you think about that trajectory, the idea that this man is going to be campaigning against a far-right president and then potentially taking, even if he wins, which I, I'm very doubtful that he would win, but even if he wins... He will be taking power at a time when the Republican uh, Party has never been as right-wing as it is now. The far right is on the ascendance. And you're going to wonder, what is Biden going to do? Is he going to tilt in a more economically populist, kind of social democratic direction to try and neutralize the appeal? Or is he going to try and adopt some of the kind of neo-fascist policies that we've already seen under Trump? Um, as a way to placate. I mean, you know, we look at Hillary Clinton, and what did she say uh, shortly after, or maybe a year or two after she lost the election? She looked at the uh, the growing power of the far right in Europe, and she said, well, the only way to deal with this is to crack down on migrants. So, I mean, I think, I think we have an idea of where the uh, center of the Democratic Party is going to go um, if, if the Republicans go in an ever more terrifying uh, right-wing direction. Well, and the portrait of Joe Biden that you paint in your book is one of a person who has almost never not done that in his career. Every time he's faced with one of those decision points, he when when he when he, you know two paths diverge in a wood, he always goes right. Um, so it's 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 a really dispiriting uh, you know the idea that we're going to run this guy against uh, Trump is is. Uh, not encouraging uh, based on literally everything he's done throughout his entire career. <laughs> well, you know, that's that, ideally you would hope that voters will look at, you know, literally everything someone's done in their career and be like, okay, this doesn't look great. Or alternatively be like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. But unfortunately, voters don't behave like this. We know this. Uh, voters can vote in a very irrational way. Um, and, you know, or sometimes they can vote you know, in a rational way, but in a way that I think is uh, not fully informed because uh, of where they get their information, uh, which I think is where we are at with the Democratic Party. Um, you know, it's a lot of people just scared of Trump and being told that the only way, you know, Russia interfered last time. And if we just choose this particular, if we just choose a centrist candidate who can't even remember the, the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, this guy will clean up. Well, if we're talking about Rational and irrational voters, 
the only way to be a properly rational, well-informed voter in this election cycle is to read Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden by Bronco Marchetich. So, Bronco, thank you very much. Wow. That was that was a great that was a great uh, you know very smooth you like that? landing. This is why I get the big bucks? Yeah. This is yeah, I'm, I'm a pro here. <laughs> thanks, Bronco. No, thanks for having me. You can listen to other episodes of the vast majority, as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us, as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on the show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store. Subscribe to our journal Catalyst or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.